it's very different, like writing for kids and actually performing for kids. Yeah. I say, okay, let's open it up and get some questions. And one kid puts his hand up, he goes, if you're famous, how come your trainers ain't new? <laughs> this week on Walking the Dog, I went for a stroll with multi-talented writer, performer, comedian, rapper, actor and children's author Doc Brown, also known by his real name, Ben Bailey-Smith. Ben grew up in North London, so he and his adorable Patadel Terrier Miko met me on London's Hampstead Heath, and we had a fabulous chat about pretty much everything. We talked about his childhood in Wilsdon with his mum Yvonne and dad Harvey, and his memories of being wheeled around in a matching stroller with his elder sister, the acclaimed author Zadie Smith, as well as his love of performing from an early age, which saw him entering rap battles as a teenager and ultimately the music industry. We also chatted about his move into stand-up comedy and the phone call he got from Ricky Gervais one day, which had a huge impact on his career. Ben also told me about meeting his wife and the insight into women he's had from his two daughters and why he was inspired to start writing for children. His new kids book, by the way, about a budding young stand-up comic is called Something I Said and it's out in June, so do pre-order your copy from Amazon. I found Ben fascinating company. He's a really smart, thoughtful bloke, and I loved hearing how his sister Zadie Smith's success had acted as nothing but inspiration to him. And his dog Miko totally had me at hello, even though, spoiler alert, she did at one point run over to a stranger and start licking the coffee out of their cup. Turns out she's a big fan of decaf cappuccinos. I really hope you enjoy my walk with Ben and Miko. If you did, please remember to rate, review and subscribe. I'll shut up now so you can hear from the man himself. Here's Ben and Miko. Come on, we're going to go for a walk. Remember this park? You've just missed, Ben. Thanks, Hina, who oh, lives up the road. Did I? And I've not seen him for ages. And I said, guess who I'm meeting? I'm meeting Doc Brown. And he remembers you very fondly. Yeah, yeah, we've had, a, we've had some good times. Really nice guy. What a lovely doggy! What kind is that? He's a Tibetan Terrier. Oh, beautiful! Isn't that amazing, Ben? That colouring. Mm. Yeah, lovely. he's an unusual. They're harder to get in this colour. You can get them in black and brown. Yes. Yeah, so. Bye bye. How do you find that? Because you're a recent dog owner. Mm. You know the sort of the interaction. Yeah, I'm not always up for it, but sometimes I am. <laughs> it's just like it's like anybody else, I guess. Like sometimes it's really annoying especially if you're in a hurry or you're deep in in thought but most of the time it's nice I mean people who have dogs tend to be nice people so I guess because they've got that desire to to care to be maternal or paternal you know so they tend on the whole to be nice people it's just whether you get accosted by like a dog bore you know I'm not really a dog <laughs> bore like I don't give that much of a shit do you know what I mean like but yeah, cool, you know, how old's your dog? Yeah, very cute, la la la. But I don't want to get into all that talk about breeds and I don't really care that much. I just like my dog. Do you know what I mean? Okay, I need to introduce you properly. Mm. I'm very thrilled to have the wonderful Doc Brown, AKA Ben Bailey Smith. Do you like Ben? Yeah, Ben's fine, Doc's fine, whatever you prefer. You don't mind either? Mm -mm. They're both my name. I mean, I've been docked since I was a teenager, so <laughs> it's more than more than half my life. And we've got <clears throat> your wonderful dog with us. Do you want to introduce us? 
This is uh, Miko. She's uh, she's a sort of what would you describe her colour as? Red chocolate. I'd say sort of russet. Yeah. Um, she's very she's autumnal. A, she's a Patterdale terrier. She's absolutely beautiful. And how old is she? She's seven months. She's a very sort of curious, um, job-worthy, <laughs> busybody. <laughs> She's got amazing character. But see, Patterdales are um, they're working dogs, you know. They were bred in, uh, in um, the Lake District. Oh, really? Yeah, for hunting foxes. Yeah, uh -huh. digging up, uh, what do you call fox, I don't know what they're, their little hide, hideouts are called underground. Oh yeah, they, that, are they, they wore it, dens? Warrens, dens. Badgers so, wore so, a warren. A listener will know, a listener who isn't a Londoner will know. So yeah, they were bred for that, so they're working dogs. So you get, you don't really see a lot of patterdills as pets because they need, they need a mission. <laughs> do you know what I mean? It's not even like, you know, you hear dogs need attention. Of course they do, all, they, all of them do, because they're all very emotional creatures, but Patterdells also need a mission. So she needs like little tasks. She can't eat out of just a bowl. It has to be like a sort of treasure hunt, do you know what I mean? And with the garden, that's like her, that's like her fortress. It's like a massive version of her crate where she sleeps, you know? She just patrols the uh, outskirts of it every night. And make sure no foxes come in. I love where you've taken me. Mm. Well, this is the greatest park in London. So do you, we're in um, Hampstead Heath. The lower end. I don't know what bit is this called, Ben, because I think they're divided into sections, yeah. aren't they? But this is my favourite part. I love all of it. I mean, I spent so much of my childhood here. My dad loved um, Golders Hill Park on the other side of the heath um, from where we are. There's a little hill at the top with uh, an ice cream parlor. And that was just like, if he ever took me there, was, that was like my best Sunday, do you know what I mean? Oh, really? Yeah. That's where I sprinkled his ashes, in the lake there where the flamingos come once a year. I think it's lovely to remember someone you know, to associate them with a place that yeah. made them happy and that you have those memories of them, you know? Absolutely. And, you know, my family is very... It's very London, man, you know? It? It's very London-centric. You know, my dad is from South London. My mum moved to South London from Jamaica. Um, late 60s, <gasps> early 70s. Oh, Ben. This looks like a patadale. Is that a patterdale? He's got a very long snout. What breed of dog is this here? It's an Irish terrier. Irish terrier. It's like a long version. <laughs> Look how big that dog is, Ben. Yeah. That's, I could... like, that's like me going for a bath. Yeah. It looks like a hairy sea lion from where we are. Well, that's what I look like going for a bath. <laughs> it's been lockdown, love. <laughs> Standards have slipped. <laughs> so, um, talk me through. You grew up not far from here, because you're in... Um... Well, I was born in the Royal Free, which is, um, for anyone who knows Hampstead, it's just at the foot of the park near the station where we met, Hampstead Heath. Um, I went to a school called Hampstead, which wasn't actually in Hampstead, it was in Cricklewood. So, yeah, I was always North West London. 
Um, both, like I say, both my parents are South Londoners, really, but they um, they both moved north. And yeah, I was born in Kilburn. Well, born in, like I say, in the Royal Free, but then grew up in Kilburn. Yeah. And uh, Willesden, Kensal Rise. Were you the youngest? Middle. You're the middle. But I've got a half-brother and half-sister as well, so there's technically five of us. And were your parents... It's your dad's hobby, is that right? Yeah. And your mum, Yvonne? Mm-hmm. And what are your memories of your sort of family experience, really? What was the atmosphere like in your home? Well, uh, we started off on... Uh, well, when we were born, anyway. We were in a council estate. Um, Walsden Lane and that, it was just the best, I mean, inside our flat, I'm not talking about the whole estate, but inside our flat, it was just the best place, man. It was the best place to be, because it was, you know, you go to some of your friends' houses when you're a kid, there's never any visitors, it's always quiet, you feel like you're going to a museum or something, you know, like Cameron Fry's house in Ferris Bueller, like, my flat was always just so much life there, man. So much stories, Jamaicans, Irish, and English, just uh, in and out, in and out. It was a great, great place to grow up. I so many of my happiest memories are there, even though it's nowhere near the nicest place I've ever lived. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? How lovely. Yeah. And were you close to Zadie Smith, your sister? Yeah, we grew up like twins, you know, only. 18 months or so apart. Yeah, we, you know, we're in the double push chair, a little McLaren, you know, stripy blue McLaren. Your Mark, your Mark II, 7980 plates. <laughs> yeah, we're in the twin one of them in the Topsy and Tim Oshkosh Bagosh, you know. What kind of a kid were you? Were you noisy or were you a. No, nah, no, I was always the quiet one, always. Were you? Yeah. Oh, a little border. I love borders. Yeah, they, look, they all look like little old men, don't they? I always say, you know, Ben, they're like 1940s dogs. Yeah, yeah. Don't you think? Yeah, when I see a border, I always think it's going to say, what oh, <laughs> or something like that. Doesn't it? I think they're like, oh, yeah, like we lost a lot of good men out there today. <laughs> yeah. Jolly good. So go on, so you were, I'm fascinated by that because I interviewed Alex Horn recently. Oh, yeah. On the podcast, and he said exactly that he said comics and sort of funny people they're either sort of look at me or observers hmm. and so do you think you were more of an observer yeah I've never never been a look at me guy I get I get very nervous when people look at me which is uh, I think a very very natural human trait but I also know that I have a lot to give to people strangers even you know so it's uh that's the paradox people like Alex and I will forever be in, you know? Introverted entertainers. Yeah, do you think you are an introvert then? Yeah, absolutely. It's sort of masking as an extrovert. But like I say, I don't think that's weird or like fanciful. I think that's a lot of human beings. It's just more extreme if you're an entertainer for a living. <laughs> because you, you ha there has to be an extroverted yeah. part that you switch on for your job. You have to have that. You even have to be able to sort of tweak it on and off, just meeting strangers in, in the street who want to talk to you about your job, you know? 
And how do, how do you find that? I've been really lucky, man. I mean, I don't do all the socials and that, so I don't, I've never experienced online abuse. I understand what it is and how many people suffer from it. Mm. So I can only go by on the street and on the street, man, I, I get a lot of love, man. It's really, really nice. I'm not going to lie. And the only time it's annoying is if you're in like a mad rush or you're with your kids arguing with like that? somebody. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like you're having an argument with your mum or something. Do you know what I mean? But most people, I think, in London anyway, have that body language. They, they, yeah. They're understanding of body language. They can see it's not a good time, you know. Miko, come on. Good girl. Well done. Good girl. Look, there's oh, one there. Look. He just gave that. He just gave you a treat. What's that? Where's it gone? Do you know she's got lovely Look. white teeth? Because well, I do the toothpaste thing every night. There's this like stuff you just you put into their gums on one side and the other, this gel, and then they lick it round. I need to do round. that. It's I good. Didn't, I didn't do that with my dog Raymond. I tried to brush her teeth. It's fucking impossible. She's really good natured. I can. She's tell. lovely, man. With uh, you know adults, kids, and dogs. Yeah. I've been super, super blessed. But at the same time, I'm very gentle with her, do you know what I mean? Are you? Yeah, because I, I, I remember people like when I was younger who like, they just beat up their dogs and wrestle <laughs> with their dogs and that, and then their dogs would bite someone. Like, oh, I can't believe it. Like, mate, have you seen how you are with your dog every fucking day? Kicking it, whacking it with a stick, wrestling like his playtime. Come on, man, what do you think it's gonna do? See someone coming towards you. So, um. It sounds like you were quite happy as a, as a kid. Did you have...? Yeah, definitely up until sort of 12, 13. And what was the house style with Yvonne and Harvey? Was it sort of love and boundaries? I don't really know how to describe it. It was just different. It was, uh, it was quite free, I'd say. And very artistic and creative. Yeah, and I think that was maybe just born out of our parents' experiences rather than any... Uh, obvious creative skill. I mean, when I look back now as an adult, I understand that they had a creative side. You know, my dad took photos, my mum made uh, pottery. But, you know, they were working people. They, they don't have time to be faffing about with art, you know? Because your so, mum was a... She was a social worker. And yeah. My dad was in, like, direct sales. Yeah. Yeah, but the thing is, their lives... That, they didn't describe their lives. Their lives were unreal. So that, I think that's what made us artists because it was endless stories. You know, you look at my mom coming over from Jamaica, the journey she took is absolutely mind-blowing. I mean, you can make a hundred films about it. And then my dad, you know, fighting in the Second World War, being on the beaches at Normandy. He had like two lives before I even met him, you know. That's incredible, He was 52 when I was born. So he'd already oh, had a life. Really? Whereas my mum was like 21, 22. But she'd already had two lives as well. So. Yeah. And then they, they, through all the lives that they've had, they meet and get together in that period, coming up to, you know, Thatcher, mm. then the, the riots in 81, like that period of incredible racial tension. Um, and a sense of like something really dangerous in the air mm. so the, the, you know like that's what we're born into so it's kind of it's just been a movie from long before we were born so it's not like they were two artists and they handed down their artist artistry or whatever 
It's more like they were two human beings who lived such, I don't know, f full lives and unusual lives. You just soak up a bit of that and you'll probably be a writer or a singer or a painter or yeah, something. Yeah, I can see that. And I look at my, my half-sister, she's, she's an artist, a painter and a curator, an art professor. Mm. My half-brother's a musician, my younger brother's a musician, my sister's a, an author. Luke, yeah. yeah. Do you know what I mean? So it's like... <laughs> There's some kind of alchemy though sometimes in family, yeah. which I find interesting. Yeah, that yeah, you see it in sports, you yeah. see it in everything. Because there is, it, it just goes to show you, there is something genetic going on, just like there is with like mental health and stuff like that. Yeah. There's, there's stuff that gets handed down, whether you like it or not. But then you also need, that needs to be nurtured. So it True. just continues the nature versus nurture debate and leaves you with the same conclusion that it's a bit of both. Like if you're mixed, you don't look like your mum or your dad. Obviously no. you do want understudy and scrutiny. But yeah. at first, when you're looking for who your team is when you're a kid, you don't find that in your house. That's why mixed race siblings, you know, end up really dependent on each other because that's the first representation they see of themselves. I mean, I've tried to write about it from the start of my career in, in, in show business. Even before that, as a rapper, I think I've, it's, it's something I've never stopped writing about. It's just more sort of tied up in the general concept of, of duality, you know? Um, and the idea that human beings are never just one thing. Yeah. Um, and being mixed is kind of a, a physical representation of that. Yeah. But that duality is something I've always written about in everything, in my raps, in my comedy, scripts, books. It's always had that thing of rich and poor, black and white. Yeah. You know, up and down, good and evil, wrong and right. However you want to look at the, the differences. but constantly hammering that point home that that's in everybody there's no there's no one thing and ev everything you say that you are you're still a part of something else you know I don't uh, do you know what I'm saying like there is no white there is no black like it's all it's all just a construct that's handed down and, and now you feel like this is your team or that is your team it's all nonsense you know I did the census the other day, and oh, uh, that, yeah. you can't you can't be black British, which annoyed me because that's how I would describe myself. I'm of mixed heritage, definitely, but black British is important to me because you know I feel British, but you know identify as a person of colour. So black British works for me. I'm not saying it should work for anybody else, but I was just a bit disappointed to see that it wasn't on there. Come on, Miko. Come on. Miko. Hey, you want to chew? Were you academic at school? Nah. Were you not? No, nah, Zadie was, but I was like... I was one of those kids who was um, a bit too smart for his own good. So, like, <laughs> I, I, I got that thing of, like, yeah, I mean, geography. <laughs> I don't... I'm not interested. And... <laughs> uh, and you know look what i can do with english like look what i can do with it i loved english so much i was just from from a very early age i was like what, can someone explain to me why i'm supposed to give a fuck about science about yeah. petri dishes or maths <laughs> i just I'm, i don't care and of course it's a really arrogant uh, approach that like nothing else is important but at the same time if you really know 
that you've got one focus and I just always had that I wasn't sure what I would do with it yeah. but I just thought this is what I like I like English I like drama and that's it that's all I want from this so I was no I wasn't a bad kid per se but I think I was definitely dis disruptive mm -hmm. because you get that with smart kids sometimes they think they're above the lesson so they sort of belittle it um, well I think sometimes with smart kids particularly kids that are talented in one area which you clearly were and are they hyper focus because they have a passion yeah. for something so you're sort of thinking, I don't want to do this physics stuff because I, I need to get this. Yeah, thing. I haven't got time for that. Like, <laughs> that's why I resent shit now. Like, I resent it now because, like, I'll be. Here's a perfect example, right? I've been making music on and off for half my life, right? And um, for about 10 years, I've, I've, I've worked with one guy who's like a, he's like a multi-instrumentalist. He's got his own studio. He's got all the the knobs to twiddle that you mm. can dream of, right? And I've worked in and out of that studio for over a decade. I've, I couldn't turn that thing on or off. <laughs> like I couldn't raise a fader and not ruin the, the song. So I, I've been in studios for 20 years. Do you know what I mean? I've seen it day in, day out, and I've never learned the first thing. Like I can just about press record on GarageBand. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> And this guy, this producer, Mikus, he said to me, I remember him saying one time, like, it's so easy, look, I'll give you logic, you download that, I'll get, I'll get you all the basic equipment and I can teach you, it's so easy. And I was just like, no, nah, I'm just not gonna learn it. He even gave me logic and I, was, I still haven't learned it, you know? And, and I said to him, it's just not in me, it's not in my brain, like, I don't have that understanding, that level of intelligence. And he goes, that's bullshit. And I said, wait, he goes, it's not that you can't do it. Because you, if you put your mind to it, of course you could, yeah? Your issue is you resent spending a minute learning about this shit if you can't write a poem, you know? Like if it's stopping in your head, if it's stopping you from painting a picture, if it's stopping you from singing a song, yeah. or rehearsing a joke, you know, or learning a line, you resent it. And I was like, fuck, that's, that's, that's it, that's 100% it. That's it exactly is. it. It's exactly it. The technicalities of my job, I just don't care about. Mm. And as I've got older, I just realized that's because you're an artist, bro. Like, mm. accept it. I've never wanted to call myself that because it seems so poncy. But it's true. I, I don't do anything else and I don't want to do anything else. That's why I have a fucking accountant. <laughs> that's why I have a fucking agent. Yeah, exactly. Do you know what I mean? That's why I have a music manager. That's why my, my team is, a, is amazing and mm. I couldn't do any of this without them. And were you popular then, as a kid? <laughs> um, that's a flat, no, I was not. <laughs> flat? Yeah, I was thinking like, <laughs> what, let, let's be honest here, like, what, like, come on, I, I had my moments, I look back and, no, I didn't really. <laughs> I was super popular in primary school, and then secondary school was just like, nah, it just didn't happen. I was like a proper loser. Were um, you? Yeah, yeah, but I, oh, I think, I think back on it as being kind of cool because I lent into it. Do you know what I mean? Like I knew, I knew my social status and I, I wasn't trying to climb the ladder. I was like, I'm, I'm good, like, I, this is okay. Like all the people in my year, the cool kids, I'm friends with them now. Like, cause we've all yeah. grown, like the social status thing has, yeah. has disappeared. That was just a school thing. But I, it's funny when I chat to them now, you know, have a beer with them or whatever. 
I do still look at them and think, you were so, you were one of, the, you were in that cool sector of, of, of our year, you know? The guys who would actually go to raves, you know? <laughs> the guys who had like the good clothes, Machino, yes. and you know, and the eight ball jackets and the Averex, the Air Max 95s, the DJs, do you know what I'm saying? The, the cool boys, you know what I'm talking about. They tolerated me, but it's not like I would get an invite necessarily to <laughs> anything good. Were you confident with women? Nah, nah, not at all. No, no, I sort of just let women do their thing to me when they wanted. I didn't really have, didn't have any moves or, uh, I just let, you know, just literally, you know when they say, oh, I got lucky last night. That was literally like, that was literally it. Like, I just get lucky. That's it, there's no skill involved really. Um, so yeah, no, I had my little crew of, of boys and there's like five of us. And that was just my work. I didn't feel the need to, to break out of that. Mm. Felt safe within that. And we just, we do like losery type stuff that I look back on very fondly now. Hey. So like when all the other boys would go, you know, raving, go labyrinth or something, we'd be, we would save up our money and buy an ounce of weed, which was like a massive amount of weed for us then, you know, when we were normally smoking like teams and little bits of hash, Get an ounce of weed and we would get uh, tickets to King's Lynn from King's Cross, get on the train, or Liverpool Street actually, I think. We'd ride to the station on our bikes, put yeah. the bikes on the train, and then we'd go to King's Lynn, then we'd ride another like 25 miles out to the Norfolk coast, and we'd just camp around there. Just <laughs> let off all our steam, but with, yeah. with none of the danger of London and no, yeah. co no cool people around, like, I was writing rhymes at that time, Were but you? I just kept them to myself. And tell me when you went to your first, it was like a rap battle, wasn't it? Mm. That you started, how old were you, about 16 or something? Maybe, maybe, maybe 16, but I'd say probably more like 18. And with rap and stuff, were you just like writing it in your bedroom? Would you do it with other friends? Or? No, 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 it's completely private. I wrote it down on, on in little books and kept it completely to myself. It was mainly mm. just about girls at first. And then it was, then it become really like political, like protest raps that I never show anybody. <laughs> <laughs> so pointless. So at what point did you, was there a case of being discovered? What happened? Did people, because you started working with Mark Ronson, didn't you? Yeah, I mean, all the music stuff was just, yeah, amateur, like potluck kind of stuff. So I never made a living off of it. I was, you know, there was, there's always been a, a rap community mm. as long as I've been around anyway but it was just very small then so like early 2000s it was just like a low-key thing really it was UK wide but you know no one was really doing big things hot until when like Dizzy came along probably Roots Maneuver Rodney P they were like the biggest guys we had skinny man but um, yeah there wasn't a real industry like there is now you know so most of what we did was for fun I used to run a like a open mic type party out of my friend's record shop in Carnaby Street on Fridays, Friday Night Live at Deal Real. And that was really the making of me really as an entertainer because I was just up there throwing these hip hop nights as a host, you know, mm. keeping the keeping the sort of vibe in the room just nice, friendly, a bit of humour, being self-deprecating, you know. I think that was the birth of the stand-up in me. But um yeah, so I would just do that and I would occasionally release music to no great fanfare, you know, because I was like, 
sail or return, you know, I'd ride my bike or around like Soho or Camden or Notting Hill. And did you go to university? Selling CDs and records. Yeah, I went to UEA in Norwich for a year to do performing arts. I dropped out at the end of the year. And then I, I went back and did a social studies course. I think I took a year to work. I think I was working at, is that when I was working at Next? I fucking did. hated that job so much, man. <laughs> I don't think there's any job I hate, I've hated more than working at Next. I also got Why? An, Why did you hate it? Retail, man. It's like, ask anyone who works in retail. I did it. I did the gap. It's, it's just horrible. Because you don't just have your boss giving you shit every day. Like, every person in there is, is like your boss. Because it's like, boss you around. Did they ask you that question they used to ask when you did the interview? Do you consider yourself to be attractive or good looking? <laughs> did they? Yeah. That's fucked up, isn't it? They, uh, now, that'd be a court case now, right? They'd be cancelled. They'd lose their job. <laughs> I got fired in a spectacular way, though. So I'm, did you I, what? I, I have it. For, it's a fond memory in some ways. How did you get fired? Oh, I just had, just had enough taking shit. and You know, they play that music. Mm. you got that music going around all day long. Somebody on some old pop hits or some shit. Yeah. And it would just be the same tape. Going around around 90 minutes, then it would start again. Right? They go round and round. You used to drive me up the fucking wall. Um, uh, one of the songs on there was "And the Sky So Blue." Sun's gonna shine on everything <laughs> you do. Don't know why. That fucking dirge. Remember that? And then, like, it came towards the Christmas period. You know, start that real early. And they said, "Oh, Ben, can you go and um, change the tape? Put the Christmas tape in." I'd not, I'd not been there for a year, so I didn't know there was a Christmas tape. I didn't know there was any more tapes. So I was like, what the fuck, there's more tapes? So I went in the back into this little room where they have the, the microphone. Yeah. So I used to do the uh, announcements as well at the end of the day. <laughs> did you know? you, what did you say? You know the ones where it's just like, we're about to close, so take your do, I want to do it so now. Yeah. Ben, can you do the announcement, please? Uh, what did I used to say? Uh, ladies and gentlemen, the shop is about to close. Please take your purchases to the nearest counter or something like that. I'm in there and they're like, yeah, in the drawer under the mics. I pull open the drawer and there's fucking like about 50 tapes. I'm sure they're all full of shit. More Lighthouse family or whatever. But just to have something different. Like, why would you not change it? Yeah. You, 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 your staff are losing their fucking minds, right? <laughs> why would you not change it? So, I, yeah, I put on the Christmas tape. But that was really the end of it for me. Like, I remember putting on this head just thinking, these guys don't care. You know, this is just a horrible job to get out of here. So... I had a big set two with my manager one time and I'd come back late. I'd been in Manchester, my, my, I missed the last train, I had to get bus, bus broke down, it was a nightmare. Mm. And I wasn't in the mood for getting shit and he gave me shit. So at the end of the day, I got on the mic and I, um, Miko, what you found? That's gross. Miko, come on, let's walk. So, um, yeah, I just went in there at the end of the day and I got on the mic and I said, uh, ladies and gentlemen, the shop's about to close, so um, please gather up your... Uh, planned purchases that throw them on the ground because they're not worth anything. They're made by child slaves in Bangladesh, you know, and then they're shipped over here for, for, for you to buy uh, an extortionate markup considering the clothes aren't even as nice as like Gap. And, and then my floor manager come running, he's like, you are finished, you are finished. <laughs> I love it. You are finished. Like, like we're in the, I don't know, in the White House or something like, we're playing with high stakes here. Do you know what I mean? Like it's like it's fucking succession. 
you know, like, mate, this is next year. I'm a sales assistant. I'm 17. Do you really think I give a fuck? I'm gone. So I, I felt very rock and roll. So um, tell me, I appreciate you've said this countless times before, but just in case anyone isn't aware, the, the Doc Brown moniker, mm. how did that start? That, was that when you I were know, a teenager? I get asked that question all the time, and I, I, it's, it's one of them ones I don't really know the answer to it. I don't, like, how did the nickname start? Does everyone remember? I, I, I don't really recall, but I'd imagine it'd be something to do with me being a massive Back to the Future geek mm. and just being a, a nerd in general. I'd, I'd say it's probably some combo of those. Whatever it is, it wouldn't initially be kindly. Um, I don't really know why I retained it. It's a, it's a rubbish name. <laughs> yeah. I really like it. But then, like, what's your alternative? Ben Smith. That's even worse. So, like, I've got really boring names. Um, nothing I can do about it. I'm not even a Benjamin. Miko, hey. Miko. Miko, leave it. Come here. Oi. Get your snout out. Come here. I got the sense just from things you've said in the past and hearing you chat about things um, that you you kind of felt that you were drawn towards performing arts and stuff like that. Yeah, from, from birth, man. Like I remember being like five or six and I wanted to be two things, either an actor in Star Wars or, um, or a, a, a milkman. Yeah, I used to love the milkman. Like, you should just see this mysterious guy like just rolling around at three miles per hour, <laughs> just just in his like tricked out little cart with all these treats on the back, and it didn't look, it didn't feel like no one was telling him nothing. Do you know what I mean? Like, no one was telling him what to do. It just seemed he seemed free, and that's like I sometimes look at my career and look at my life now. I I feel like I am that milkman. You know, I. I I, I just love just doing my own thing, in my own time, in my own way. And you've got two daughters, haven't you? Yeah. I couldn't recommend it higher for e every single man. Like, the shit I'm learning now, you know, since, since Me Too, it's about equality. So, knowing that as I did innately anyway, I think it's amazing what I've learned on top of that in the last five years. Really? Either from the, yeah, either from just being out there in the world, facing outwards, or from my daughters, you know. And do you think it sounds like every day up, is an education? Well, you grew up in a house with intelligent, strong females yeah. as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> no, look at that. Oh, look at I that. love your dog. What is that? She's a Carpathian sheepdog. She's from Romania. Incredible. Yeah, she's beautiful. She's just a rug with legs. <laughs> I didn't want to say it. You know, I didn't want to. <laughs> <laughs> they just stay with the sheep, but they don't do anything. She's absolutely lovely. Oh, no. It's all right, it's decaf coffee. Uh, Miko, <laughs> hey, nosy. Miko, Ben, do you want to just say what your dog did? I don't want to shame you. She went up to the owners of a Romanian sheepdog, which is self-described as a, a rug on legs, and she started drinking a cup of coffee, which actually belonged to the sheepdog, only in London. <laughs> What point did you get into comedy then? Because you were a youth worker uh, as well, yeah, weren't you? Yeah, 2008. Yeah, I was a youth worker while I was doing music. I wasn't earning enough money to live off of on music. So I did uh, youth work during the day, um, part-time, music the rest of the time. Um, but yeah, 2008, February was the first time I stepped on a stage and tried stand-up. Miko, this way! Miko! Miko! Come on, this way! 
And so how did you first get into comedy? Um, uh, again, like, it was organic. It was accidental. It was never a plan, ever. Mm. I mean, it was... Yeah, it was a weird situation. Like, while I was doing music, I'd done some stuff for um, Radio 1 and 1 Extra that was kind of comedy-related, but it wasn't... I didn't do it um, as me or I was just writing stuff for this other guy who was had a sort of music and comedy thing on Radio 1 and 1 Extra. He went off and started working in comedy. I, like, I hadn't spoken to him for a couple of years and he called me and said he'd been working on this show for Lenny Henry for Radio 4. Um, his name was Danny Robbins and um, he asked me to help out with some of the lines in the script there were some young black characters in there and he was like look I'm not a young black man so like mm. it's, it's a good bit of foresight I'd, I'd say you know um, and he I think they, they got he got me got the BBC to pay me like 200 quid to be a kind of consultant on it yeah then I ended up working on the whole series it was like a radio comedy show and, and Lenny Henry would give me these little uh, walk-on bits you know where I'd say a line here or a line there and that was the start of it man it was the producer of that show he got me working on another couple of comedy shows, writing like comedy music for, for Radio 4 shows. And then he was the same one who brought me down to this comedy night and pushed me onto stage to, to try something. And you must have realised then that you were funny. Yeah, kind of. I knew, I knew that I could hold a crowd, you know, under any circumstances. And that just grew into being comedic because it's just inherently funny, isn't it, to just, just be up there trying to avoid disaster. <laughs> and that's how it began. But right, were you on, funny you at home, for example, and amongst Yeah, I was always friends. funny at home. Were you? But not so much amongst my friends. Yeah. My friends would tell you I was the least funny, am the least funny person in the group. And I would agree. But that's not what the skill is. Miko! Miko, leave it! Hey! When you kind of made the move over to comedy, was it a case of thinking, I'll give this a go, I'm obviously quite good at it, or...? Yeah, yeah, I just thought, why not? Yeah. I literally just thought, why not? And I was in desperate need of money, um, had a baby, had another one on the way. Mm. And when these first couple of gigs went well, I just thought, well, there must be something like in rap where you can battle for money. There must be. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? There must be, right? There is in everything. Yeah. So I just Googled it and the first thing that came up was So You Think You're Funny and it was five grand the prize. Whereas I've been battling for like 500 pounds max, you know. Um, so it's like five grand, I was like, I'm going to do this. So I went in that competition, I ended up getting all the way to the final and I didn't win, but it, it was irrelevant because in, at the final, it's like in a big hall in Edinburgh in the middle of the festival, yeah. you've got all the new agents, all the agents looking for new talent there. Do you know what I mean? The judges were like Johnny Vegas and like, head of Channel 4 comedy and shit so for me that was it it was done it was a done deal did you really think oh I like these guys this no is... no I didn't I never liked comedians really yeah I never got on with any of them I ask them like I don't have any friends from comedy and I, I guess I must be the uh, I must be the dick because I never made friends with anybody so it must be me I think I, I started on the wrong foot I started off with a big working class chip on my shoulder like, look at these guys, they're just happy not to get paid and get dicked by their agents and by promoters and... So you lot are mad. I come from rap, like, I want my money now. You know? 
So I think people thought, oh, he's a bit, oh, he's a bit aggressive. <laughs> well, I was on the black circuit, it was obviously completely different. They were like, who the fuck you think you are, you know? Little squirt. Comedians are social lepers, you gotta remember that. We're weirdos, right? They're people who have to sort of be alone most of the time to get their job done. They, they write alone, they perform alone, they travel alone. But their work is about people. So they have to sort of be around people as well, but there's a, a lecherous side of that. I don't mean in a sexual way, but in like a, being like a lech for real human behavior. You see what I'm saying? Because then they ape that and turn it back on stage. And I just felt that was an uncomfortable way of living. I wasn't really a fan of it. And um, of course, there's just a massive amount of jealousy and suspicion because our intellectual property is everything. So uh, yeah, there's no, like you'll notice whenever a comedian gets massive, all the comedians that are still on the circuit are like, oh, he's such a prick. We're gonna head up this way. Yeah, so the, so the comedy thing, but then you did, you must have realized you're good at it. Yeah, yeah, I realized quite quickly because my rhythm, because I hadn't watched stand-up before, before doing it, my rhythm, my whole approach was quite different. And, it, 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 and having rap in there as well, it just sort of snapped people into attention. Do you know what I mean? Like, just like, wait, what is this? What is this? Mm. Look at the way he's doing it. It's, it's different. So I wasn't the funniest at first, but I, I'd have this little sort of trick up my sleeve that would just, I'd capture people's attentions and imaginations. And I remember it was Sean Walsh, actually, who said to me, we were in Bristol and he'd watched me for the first time, like doing a proper like 20 minute set or something, some bit longer than normal. And he was like, dude, you just, everything you've got is like fascinating. It's great. It's interesting, but just, you just need way more jokes per like, <laughs> you know, mm. per paragraph. And he was so right. So from there, I sort of streamlined it and I just made the raps like untouchable and the bits in between just I'd make them as real as possible and, mm. and, and keep improvising as well as often as I could and it just sort I sort of became bulletproof man I just started becoming a headline act at all the clubs and then yeah before long within about 18 months I was making a very healthy living it was good but that build up in the day up oh. until the, I just absolutely unbearable and when you're doing it you know at my peak I was probably gigging like 11 nights a week which is, you know, there's only seven nights in a week. <laughs> but it'd be yeah, 11, 12, maybe more gigs, you know, a double up, triple up on nights. I always find it amazing when Frank says, oh, we'll meet for lunch and a girl got a show tonight, you know. Yeah. Like, How can you just have lunch and act like life's normal? Well, Fra Frank especially can because, well, number one, he's a genius. Number two, he is incredibly quick-witted. So, like, when he started out, you know, he's one of, in a way, the godfathers of the more modern type of comedy that we've um, grown up with. Mm. Um, but yeah, he was doing, you know, hosting at, at nights when he started. So he'd have to do something different every night because the whole audience knew him, do you know what I mean? So he's just so sharp. So I can see why he'd have a more laissez-faire attitude. Plus he's got like 20 years more experience. Um, that said, it doesn't always equal to not being nervous. Is I know for no. a lot of people it's still, so difficult the build up to a gig for me yeah I found it at times unbearable then the other thing was just loneliness I just get really lonely that life shit you know do you think it can bring on the blues sometimes that yeah lifestyle? absolutely especially if you're already prone to it and I was already prone to like bouts of depression and um, 
Oh, she's taken a shit. <laughs> and, um, you know, anxiety and... Why are you? Yeah. Uh, and I think if, you, if you're that... Type of, I don't, you know, the main thing for me is catastrophizing and like... You know, oh my God, these terrible things are going to happen, and just getting so caught up in that, you know. And like therapists will tell you, like, has that shit actually happened? You know, not yet. So why are you like letting it distort your your daily life? Um, but yeah, I had a lot of that. So um, I don't think stand up was a healthy thing for somebody like me because of the amount of time you have to spend alone. And you know, like, whenever you're feeling down or you're feeling like life is really problematic, just talking to someone can make a huge difference because you just say the problem and they go, oh, yeah, that happened to me. Oh, yeah, my brother's going through that or whatever it is, you know. And you immediately go, oh, that's actually really <laughs> normal. It's fine. You can get through this with the help of other people. But self-will is never going to do it. You can't just do it all on your own. And when you're a stand-up, you do everything all on your own. So, you know, I was forcing my life into this hole wherein I didn't need anybody but myself. And that wasn't a healthy way for someone like me to live. Whereas now making movies and television, it's like, say what you like about it, but it is a team sport, man. You, you need the other 300 people involved. Every single one of them is vital no more or less vital than you, you know? So there's this incredible kind of camaraderie. And if you want to be alone, you can be alone, just like in any workplace. Just fuck mm. off for an hour, you know? So Ricky Gervais had a big mm. effect on you, didn't he? Your career? Uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, massive, man. Like, a, a Gervais endorsement in, in comedy terms is like, come on, man. <laughs> like, of, of anybody to endorse you, what, you're going to get the GOAT, like, the UK GOAT. <laughs> how, did you, how did you start working with Ricky then? Uh, YouTube, I think. He's seen some stuff that I'd done on there. Got his guy to, to call me. Just phoned my phone. It was mad. I was just sat in the garden on my old flat. My phone rang and it was Ricky Gervais. I didn't, I didn't believe it was him. <laughs> I thought it was bullshit. He was like, what's up, doc? Like that. And I was like, you know, unknown number. I'm like, but who is this? He goes, it's Ricky Gervais. And I was like, I think I just hung up. Or I said something and then hung up. And then the phone rang back and it was his guy. And the guy was like, uh, oh, hey, you know me, I'm a friend of so-and-so's. I know so-and-so. And I was like, oh, yeah. And he goes, it really is Ricky Gervais. Like, he's got, he wants to ask you something. And I was like, <laughs> and I remember exactly what I thought. I remember thinking, whatever he asks me, I'm going to say yes. Like, whatever it is, I'm just going to say yes. It's probably going to be nothing, but I'm just going to say yes. So um, he, uh, he comes back on the phone and he goes, hey, I've seen stuff, man. Really, really funny. Um, he goes, um, this might be beneath you, which is funny because it's the same thing Mark Ronson said to me. This might be beneath you, but do you want to come open for me at this gig in, in Norway and see how it goes, like, and you come do some more with me. And I was like, bruv, of course, of course. So the first time I met him, like he flew me out business class. First time I met him was backstage at the first gig in Oslo. And that was 2012, maybe? Yeah, end of 2012. And it was after that we had a beer and he told me about Derek, 
and saw it, seeing if I'd be interested in working on that. So I ended up writing and working with him on Derek. And we're both sort of like failed musicians, so we, <laughs> we just start writing little songs together, trying to make each other laugh, you know, around his office or at his house or whatever. And that's when we wrote Equality Street. And um, Richard Curtis approached him to do something for um, Comic Relief, 2013. And Ricky called me and he was like, what, see that song? He's like, what if we do it, what if I do it as Brent? Like we just bring Brent back. And he's like, you know, it'll just kickstart your career. Like we just bring Brent back and you're like the star of it. And I was like, what? I couldn't quite believe it. So we shot this video in January, 2013. And you know, most of the time Comic Relief is not fucking funny. You know that, right? You ever watch that telephone? whatever yeah. it's just it's always shit man it's always just like actors thinking they can do comedy <laughs> fuck off let's do a version of whatever the show whatever the fuck old, old white people in corsets let's let's do a version of that but it's it's like a funny version yeah imagine and we did it and it just killed it just killed the internet like bang people were like what that's hilarious it was clear there was such a brilliant chemistry between you two. Yeah, but we had it going for a minute there. It was good. And we do gigs in character, you know, like musical gigs in character. It was a lot of fun. And we shot loads of cool stuff, man. The movie was probably the most fun I've had on a film set ever. Oh, yes, that's, um, like, is it Life on the Road? It was cool. Yeah, yeah, you know, it's not people's favourite film, but I don't really care about that. I, I'm just glad it wasn't complete shit, do you know what I mean? I'd hate for the first movie I did to be rubbish. But actually, my track record, as tiny as it is, is pretty much, it's, it's pretty class. Like, the first film I worked on was Attack the Block, which is an amazing film. Do you know what I like about you, Ben, is that you just say, oh, that was a good thing that I did. You know how people tend to be a bit, they sort of skirt around it a bit because they feel it's, it's a sort of polite thing to do or make them seem likeable. To say, oh, well, it wasn't very good. You know, so I wrote a book and I have a habit. Some say, I loved your book. I'll say, oh, it was just a... And it's really... You have to teach yourself to say, thank you. I was proud of that piece of work. Absolutely. And you've got to be honest with yourself when it's shit as well. And I think if you can do those two things, which is easy to do if you keep the same people around you. I've not really made any new friends, you know, <laughs> since being in show business. So I've still got the same people around have you me. Not? And they... They just tell you, they tell you how it is, man. And they know when you're, you're getting too big for your boots. And you've been with your other half for a long time, haven't you? Yeah. We met at a youth club. I have to, should stress that she was a staff member, not a, not a child. <laughs> what was your impression of her when you first met her? Did you really have a I knew she didn't like me. <laughs> I knew she didn't like me at all. I knew exactly what she thought of me and I was right. She thought I was arrogant, selfish, self-absorbed. Um, yeah, she was, she was spot on, but she's a good judge of character like that. <laughs> so did you have to sort of win her over? Yeah, definitely. Did you? Yeah. Yeah, it was worth it. She, she, she has the power and the intelligence and, and most of all the empathy to make me a, a better person. And that's not like you know, grinding your other half down to the nub that you think is acceptable, which women get accused of doing a lot. It's not that. It's more like there's something missing from all of us, right? And if someone else can bring some of that missing piece, 
to make you more of a whole. That's, you know, that's a valuable person to have on, on, on your team. She cares about people, she gives a shit. She tries to do the best by herself and other people every single day. She's such a positive person. She's a teacher, you know, it's the best possible position for someone with that demeanor and that outlook. And um, yeah, you don't often meet people like that because people are generally quite self-motivated, you know. And, um, you know, isolation, I don't think has helped that. You know, people are very kind of like, fuck everybody but me. And also, and there's a lot of dishonesty, nice, you know. How nice that you've been with her this length of time. So, you just know there's a real purity to that in the, the business you're in, I think. Yeah, and it's not, it's not easy. It's not an easy thing to maintain. Relationships are really, really complicated and they require a lot of hard work and, and MOTs and stuff like that. Mm. Sometimes you just let them drift or you let a resentment build, you know. Those, those are the things that danger every single relationship. So you've got to be on it, you've got to be on it. But yeah, the main thing is just keep being grateful and be reminded that other people can make you better, you know. Um, yeah, em empathy is the key, empathy is the key. You started writing kids' books, yeah. which are really lovely actually, because you've worked a lot, you've done, you did the bedtime stories. Yeah. That was a big deal. That was a huge deal. I really wanted to get on that show. But it's fucking hard to get on that show. Like, <laughs> Judy Dench was in front of me. I thought they'd be, like, so, you know, like, oh, my God. Like, he's actually asked if he can be on it. We've been trying to get him on this for years. No, no. <laughs> Motherfuckers are queuing up to get on Betsy BB's Bedtime Stories. Didn't Tom Hardy do it? It's fucking Tom Hardy done it. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> so I knew it was a big deal. And I, I was only doing it for my kids though at the time I didn't realize what a big thing it was yeah. but I, I thought it'd be a big deal for my kids but it took me so long to get up the queue to like Judy Dench <laughs> that by the time I was on it my kids were too old to give a shit they didn't care and so your new book which is coming out in June yeah and it's called it's called something Some I said something I said it comes out on June the 10th which is the same day that my mum is publishing her first novel how bizarre is that that's when? complete and utter coincidence. Not like some plan that we had or anything. It's just mad. And what's your, we, we the stars have aligned. We need to talk about your book, but tell me about your mum's book. It's called The Day I Fell Off My Island, and it it's, uh, just charts the journey of this, this teenage girl from, from Jamaica to here. Mm. Uh, and the, the family complications and the inherited trauma that, that is buzzing around sort of gives you an idea of the early, the late, uh, it's contempt contemporary, late contemporary Jamaican culture, but also like early contemporary black British culture. It just shows you a bit of both of those. And it's, it's funny as well. And your book is called? Something I said, it's, it's on Bloomsbury. It's, uh, so it's a, was what they call a middle grade novel. So I've, I just wrote it like an adult novel Did for you? kids, really. It's like a, it's one, it feels like a family movie. That's what it feels like. Yeah. It feels like a good, contemporary family movie it's very real world there's no dragons there's no fantasy there's no uh portal to another dimension boy, is there stand-up or, or comedy there is it? some stand-up yeah. in it it's yeah. about a, a a kid who's like nearly 13 who through various contrivances ends up doing uh stand-up in a very sort of organic way but it's, it's kind of a response to what's going on in his life um 
but yeah, it ends up on a, a, a big sort of epic journey for him in a literal sense, because he goes to America. But it's a, it's a circular story that brings him back home um, to his place in Camden, where he starts to realize how much of his life was actually falling apart, you know. It just took him a really weird journey to, to work it out. So it's kind of like a wholesome Did family you like writing comedy. It? No, no, I hate it. Like, <laughs> writing is horrible. Isn't like, it, isn't to have to do that, like, it's so hard. Like having the proof in my hands is incredible. It really is. Um, but yeah, the process of it, oh my God, I'm going to wish you were my worst enemy. You've so said, tedious. You've said, haven't you, that you're, because Zadie obviously. I don't know how she does it. Really? Nah. It's like magic, it's like close-up magic. Like, you know it's happening, it's happening in front of your eyes, but you just can't work out how, how it's being done. What's the trick? <laughs> it's just, just what she does, man. It's different. It's not what I do, do you know what I mean? It's something that I try. What did you think when she first got it so successful? Were you aware when you first read her star? Did you think there's something really special here? Yeah. It was no, it was no surprise. It was, it was amazing the heights it got to, mm. for her to be like at one time the maybe the biggest author in the world. Um, but it was no surprise like that she delivered something amazing, because she was a freak of nature from an early age. You know, the speed that she was reading novels as a little child. You know, scary speed reading, and then you know she just wanted to write with like a twelve. 12th birthday we got her a typewriter and she tried to write a novel on it. Do you know what I mean? At 12 years old. And then at fifth, I think she was 14 or 15 and she won like a writing competition in, for Just 17. Remember that magazine for girls? She that was like the guest like fan editor. She edited the, a whole issue of that. So when she was like 14 or 15. Even before that, like when she was eight, she came second in a national writing competition sponsored by Smarties. And um, the face of it was this character, Dr. Smarty Pants, who was an alter ego of Michael Rosen. So Michael Rosen was kind of the face of it in character, mm. Dr. Smarty Pants. And she came, she came second in a national writing competition. It was like all on TV and that. You know, we had a photo of her with Michael Rosen wearing the Dr. Smarty Pants glasses and the, these big blue frames and the, and the doctor's jacket, you know hand on the shoulder kind of thing, doing a silly face. And that's always been on, you know how everybody from the 80s, they've got those collages in their kitchen, you know, all the cutout photos behind a frame of glass. It's at the bottom of that, I always look at it. And then obviously getting into like writing for kids. I see, uh, oh, we've got this one booking coming up a couple years back. It's maybe 2018 or 19, at a book festival in Cheltenham. So I go there and I see on the lineup Michael Rosen's going to be there. So um, when I saw him, I, I, I suddenly lost my nerve and I didn't speak to him. And then I went into the toilet just before I went on stage and he came in. Mm. And then because it was just the two of us, it's <laughs> the men's not really a best place to start <laughs> conversation. But I said, hey, 1980, whatever it was, 1982, 1983, I got a photo of you in my kitchen. Like, and you ran this Dr. Smarty Pants, Smarty's like best children's writer competition. 
And he was like, oh, I remember that. He goes, I still got the glasses. <laughs> and I, I showed him because I'd taken a picture, having seen that he was going to be there before I'd taken a picture when I was at my mum's and really? had it on my phone. And I was like, look, look at that. I still got the photo. And he was like, wow. I said, see that girl there? She's, she came second. And he was like, oh, bless. And I was like, yes, yeah, my sister. He said, bless. I said, she is now the world-renowned author, Zadie Smith. And one of her first inspirations at the earliest possible age was, was you. And he was just like, fuck, you yeah, know. <laughs> it feels like nothing but a positive thing that Zadie's success was simply a total inspiration for you. Yeah, it was, the thing, it was yeah. the thing that made me think, right, it, anything is possible. It is possible to just live off your ideas. Mm. That thing that was always in the back of my mind. Yeah. And, and yet, you know, for another seven years after White Teeth, I was still just doing youth work. But it was in the back of my mind every day, you belong somewhere else. The thing was, I actually really enjoyed youth work. So it wasn't like I was in next for seven years going, oh, I've got to get out of here. You're it wasn't finished. like that. You're finished. <laughs> it wasn't like that at all. I really loved that job yeah. and I'm still in touch with that organisation that I worked with and still see the kids. They're all adults now. And it was a wrench to leave when I realised I can't do this and stand up. It's too, it's too hard. Mm. Um, so, yeah, but I had no fear going and stand up and thinking I'll make a living from it because of Zadie, because of like, Look, you can do this. Like when you go into my mum's house, you go into the living room, there's a bookshelf um, and it's just got hundreds of copies of, of, of White Teeth and On Beauty, like in like hundreds of different languages. It's just got all the different releases. And you, you go in, you see that and you think that way well, and that's it, isn't it? You can, you, your ideas can travel the world in some form. And you can share ideas and, and have other people go, yes, that's what the fuck I feel. Mm. You know, connection is everything. And, and you go and you see that and you're like, anything's possible. Anything's possible. You were saying you lost your dad? Yeah, 2006. I'm really sorry. Yeah. That, were you, that must have been tough. Yeah, it was, it was um, you know, I cried when I heard, but then I was very much like, right, down to business because uh, Zadie was still living in New York and... Uh, um, he didn't speak to his other son and, and um, you know, I was the one who was nearest by to just sort things out. So I was very, a lot of people, you hear this from a lot of people, like they become um, quite businesslike in the days following loss. Um, and it sort of keeps the wolf at the door, that's what I realised, because it wasn't until the funeral itself when I spoke, I was just a mess, trying to speak, I couldn't speak, I was a mess. Yeah. That's when it hit me. And it's mad because I'm, I really met my other brother that day. I'd only met him once before, like when I was like three years old. Yeah, yeah. And they'd not spoken for, you know, a generation. And I actually met him then and got on really well. Yeah, and then like his son and me, uh, we're actually, we're, we're quite close. It's funny how like, you know, the, all those things of the past, you inherit them. And when you meet the next generation, you're like, well, the only reason I don't speak to you is yeah. to other people's issue. Like, it doesn't make sense. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, in I'm a weird sure way, his death, his death brought about um, a, a more of a closeness with certain people. I have therapy, and I'm really quite evangelical about it, because I think it's a good thing to do. Yeah, it's a great do thing you, to do. Do you have therapy, or have you had it? Miko, shush. because that boy had a big stick. Yeah. I think everybody should at least try it man like why not like, it's like we were saying earlier about like your problems 
when you say them out loud and someone else goes, oh yeah, I've, I've done that or I've had that or my, yeah. mate's, my mate's done that. Um, it immediately doesn't belittle them. It immediately just makes them a bit more manageable because you've just said it out loud. Mm. There's a Chinese saying, because you know how you stack up your problems? And they say like, if it's a problem you can fix, then why worry? Yeah. If it's a problem you can't fix, then why worry? Because like you can't fix it. So it's, it's, it's sort of, it's reminiscent of the serenity prayer, isn't it? Where yeah. they say like, yeah. uh, the wisdom to know the difference. The wisdom to know the difference, the, the, the changes, you know, like what you can and can't change, like th what's out of your control, what's out of your power. You're not a people pleaser. I'm saying that I don't know, are you a people pleaser? I think everybody's a people pleaser to some extent, you know. You, it's very rare that you get the same face of a person everywhere they go. Those type of people, like my wife's like that, you know, those type of people who are just the same with absolutely everyone. Yeah, they're amazing. Those are good people, right? How are you with confrontation then? Do you No, I don't like that. <laughs> <laughs> Who likes confrontation? Like, that's, that's what Tom, like, Tom. Yeah, but he's not British. Like, if you're British, like, it's got to be the number one thing you're trying to avoid with every second, every inch of your being. <laughs> like, the confrontational people in my life, like, they're amazing they're like they're unique people they've got this like incredible skill i don't know how they do it you know those people who are just like no fuck that you know those people wait no fuck that no well he just pushed in front maybe he's in a hurry no 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 fuck that yo yo boss man come in bruv you see you just stepped in front of my bridge in there oh no i was just going oh you, you're fucking babbling now bruv get the fuck to the back of the queue everyone in the queue be like yay I look at those people as like magicians, don't you? Those people who just, they just know what to say in the moment, yeah, in a confrontation. Yeah, but person in the back of the queue going, yay! Yeah, I'm, 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 a, I'm just another bod in the queue clapping. I'm not, I'm not that guy. <laughs> Let me tell you how bad my confrontation skills are, right? There was one time, I wanted to take my brother to this teppanyaki place in Camden. Uh, you know where they prepare the food on the hot plate in front of you? They're like at, you're at the bench and they're cooking yeah. some incredible Japanese shit on, the, <laughs> on that hot plate. Yeah. Hot table thing. It was mad expensive, but I saw they had a, a two for one night. So I said, let's go on two for one night. And then we can like properly just taste everything and yeah. have, have, have some booze. So we went and it was good. And the bill came and I was like, what the fuck? Like I was thinking it's going to be like 150 pounds max. Like, maybe 100, 100 pounds, I don't know, somewhere in that zone. And it was like 240 pounds. And I was like, what the fuck? I, was, I just called the waiter over and I was like, you've got the uh, bill wrong. He's like, I, I didn't spend nearly that. Like it was at least half that. Yeah. And he was like, no, no, that's the right, it's correct. And I was like, well, can I speak to the manager then? And the manager comes out and I'm like worked up at this point. <laughs> and I'm like, you're trying, you're trying to rip me off for like 240 quid. I was adding it up as I went. It should at least be about half that, if anything. It should be 130 max. And he goes, uh, I was like, yeah. And I was like, you know, it's two for one. You're trying to like do it. You're trying to kill me here. And he was like, um, uh, two for one Tuesday. Today, Wednesday. <laughs> <laughs> and you know when you're already up, like you're already up. You're on, you know, you, so you're loud and people are looking at you and you have to do such an immediate climb down. I couldn't come climb down straight away. So I was like, yeah, well, you know, should be, should be a Wednesday. 
should be a Wednesday. Because more people want to do something because it's hump day. So you've got the day wrong. <laughs> oh, there's an Alsatian. See, I'm a bit older than you, Ben, so I grew up in the 70s and they always were very 70s dog, the Alsatian. Well, they, <laughs> she loves a coffee. She, she, she just taken the empty coffee cup out of her hand. I thought she was giving me an affectionate kiss. She knocked the coffee out of my hand. Outrageous. Did you have animals growing up? No. No, and I, I, th I think that's why I always wanted one. You always want what you don't have, innit? So we had a cat for a while and went all in and got the dog. And yes, they do hate each other. And why did you, so you didn't, your parents weren't really pet people? Nah. You know, in, in Jamaica, like an animal works. You don't just have an animal sitting around doing <laughs> fuck all, not earning its keep, and you're paying for it. You're giving money to the fucker. What? No, he's supposed to be earning you money. So that relationship was a non-starter. And then with my dad's family, I don't know, like, I think you probably did get a lot of dogs with working class families, but I just don't think he had, he grew up with dogs. So it just wasn't on his agenda. But yeah, my mum was, she was proper anti-animal. Like, they work for you and then you eat them. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> and what do your friends say in terms of, you know, I always think you have certain friends that you mm. think, I call Ben, when dot 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 mm. what would the answer to that question be do you think if you asked your friends mm. what do i what do i provide for you um yeah i hope i i i, I like to think i i'm the guy who like does try and check up on people do you know what i mean like my, with my close friends you know how it is with close friends you just fucking never see them you know <laughs> Even before the pandemic, you know, you, it's not like the old days when you're young and you're just hooking up all the time, you yeah. know. So friendship changes, but it's important to keep those day one people there because they they know you way better than than you think, you know. Mm. Um, so they're good good people to have around, and yeah, I would like to think they'd say, oh yeah, he does, you know, he shouts me, and he'll sort out, he'll sort out a get together. Are you quite a good uh, in a crisis? Do you think? Mm. Are you someone you, a friend would call and say, I've got this problem? Yeah, are you yeah, that, hap are you that happened on Thursday. Yeah. Did it? It happened just last week. So I'd, I'd say the answer to that is I'm, I'm quite a cool head. Yeah, I can but, see um, that. Like I said, the, the confrontation thing, I'm not like necessarily <laughs> like the best in an emergency You're emergency. You're not let's roll. I'm not let's roll, no. I'm like, let's think. <laughs> Hold on, let's have a think about this. Or let's talk. <laughs> Mika, come on. Come on, Meeks, we're nearly there. We've got to go. Have you just run out of batteries? Hey, come here. I'm really looking forward to getting your book for my niece because I think The book looks... I'm super proud of, man. Like, oh, the book is... brilliant. I can't wait for it to come out. I can't wait to do readings. Do you think it's nice as well that kids, you get such a genuine reaction because they're not thinking, oh, I know who he is, so I'll be nice kids. to him about that thing. They're just saying, I reacted and related to this My thing. friend's brother. Oh, wow, look at that. My friend's brother, was, he was doing like a kid's comedy thing. Like, he always tried to get me to do it. He's like, yeah, kids love you. Like, I'm gonna do it. I, I said no every single time. Yeah. Just out of the fear of dying in front of kids. Like, it's nothing worse. The way they look at you. Kids don't give a fuck. They ask me to come in and talk to the schools. I remember going into one school and so shouts the kids, they're just looking at me, right? And one, I say, okay, let's open up and get some questions. And one kid puts his hand up, he goes, if you're famous, how come your trainers ain't new? 
<laughs> and I was just like, I, it's very different, like writing for kids and actually performing for kids. Yeah, yeah. So I, I actually have started writing bits and pieces specifically for kids, but you know, you die in front of them, it's, it's, oof, it's painful. <laughs> they don't business, they will tell you, they'll let you know. Oh, right. I have loved meeting you and I've really enjoyed our walk. Yeah. Thank you so much, Ben. Yeah, pleasure. Say goodbye. Bye bye. Bye. <laughs> Thank you so much. I really hope you enjoyed listening to that and do remember to rate, review and subscribe on iTunes. <laughs>